and give you all a warm welcome to our service tonight. We'll begin by singing from Psalm 103 in the Scottish Psalter, verses 8 to 13. The Lord our God is merciful and he is gracious, long-suffering and slow to wrath, in mercy plenteous. We'll stand to sing verses 8 to 13. The Lord our God is merciful, and he is gracious, long-suffering, and so to wrath, mercy aspect of your character we should focus on and everything about you is great and amazing but you do tell us that your tender mercies are above all your other works and therefore it is good for us to think about your mercy that you would um, remind us that you delight to show forgiveness 
and to provide uh, restoration and to show to us that you're the God who multiplies to pardon. In a real sense, although we have to some degree experienced your mercy, yet we have no real idea of how large it is. We tend to measure it by our own experience and by the experience of those we know or who have heard about. But yet the reality is, as your word tells us, at the end of the day, you will have shown mercy to a number that no one can count. In earthly life, mercy or pardon is quite rare. But in the heavenly life, it is a common experience of all who will be with you in the eternal world. And we thank you, Lord, for that reality. Because it's a reminder that none of us deserve anything uh, from your hand. And yet you give to us what we need the most, your pardon. And we thank you, Lord, that the Lord's Supper is a very vivid picture of the way that you provided uh, mercy for sinners. So we pray as we are going through our service that we would be aware that you are, as we've just been singing, merciful and gracious, and long-suffering and slow to wrath, and mercy plenteous. Lord, uh, remember us then as we have our um, time around your word and at the Lord's Supper. We pray for those who are not able to be with us, that you would remember them, uh, each one where they are, and according to their circumstances. We pray too for others we know who have got real burdens at this time, and each of us knows people in that situation. But it's good for us to think about them and to pray that you would have mercy on them and help them in their troubles and their predicaments. Lord, uh, we realize that there is a special significance about our meeting tonight. Uh, the last time that the current um, relationship will be uh, publicly on display. And we just pray, Lord, that you would uh, remind us all that it's all to do with your mercy and that you are the God who arranges things according to your own plan. And we therefore pray, Lord, that you would be with us and may this be a time of special awareness that you are the God the Heavenly Father of your people. So bless us, Lord, as we are here. Remember us all for good and pardon our sins, we pray. For Christ's sake, amen. Now we can read from Paul's letter to the Ephesians and chapter 5 and verses 22 to 33. 
Uh, wives, submit your own husbands as to the Lord. Uh, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to, in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her by having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And may God bless that reading. We'll now sing from Psalm 22 and sing Psalms, and we'll sing verses 1 to 5. My God, my God, why have you <coughs> forsaken and abandoned me? Why are you far from giving help, from listening to my anguished plea? We'll sing verses 1 to 5. We'll stand to sing. <coughs>
And we can turn back to the passage we read there, Ephesians chapter 5. And I'd like us to think together about verses 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without uh, blemish. It is uh, interesting, um, the examples that Paul points out to, uh, to Christians. And usually he starts off uh, with Christ himself. In uh, Philippians chapter 2, for example, he's talking about humility. And in that chapter, as I'm sure we remember, there's a famous um, description of Jesus who humbled himself and made himself of no reputation. And so humility, he is our example. And... In that chapter, he goes on to also mention uh, Timothy and Epaphroditus, both of them who had shown their humility by their uh, willingness to serve uh, the church in different ways. But Christ is the example. And the writer of Hebrews uh, tells us that in Hebrews 11 and 12, and there's all the, Hebrews 11, there's the, the list of all the heroes of the Old Testament. And each one of them did something special um, to indicate to us that uh, the life of faith uh, can have its very uh, profound experiences but as far as the life of faith that we're meant to look at, it's the life of Jesus, that we are to um, consider him who did the greatest achievement. And when we do that, as it were, put all the list of <clears throat> achievements in Hebrews 11 in one scale of the balance, and some of these experiences are um, almost beyond our ability to grasp the pain and the distress and on one hand and also the heights of spiritual achievement that they went through on the other. But put them on one side of the scale and Christ's faith on the other side. And the faith of all these heroes it kind of gets no longer in view, as it were. And Christ is the example 
of the life of faith. <clears throat> and as we can see here in the context where Paul speaks about um, the verses we're going to look at, Christ again is the example regarding domestic situations. But I want us to think about what Paul says about Jesus in these uh, three verses. And what he says about Christ divides quite neatly, as it were, into past, present, and future. What did he do in the past? Well, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What's he doing in the present? Well, he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And what's he going to do in the future? So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she might be holy and without blemish. So I want us to think about past, present, and future with Jesus. The past there in verse 25. What does Paul focus on? Well, he um, deals with, we might say, or points out uh, Christ's attitude and his action. His attitude is he loved the church. And his action is he gave himself up for her. His attitude. Well, it's obvious what it is. His love. Christ loved the church. What does that involve? Well, we know the answer to this, because all the, ans the answers to all these kind of questions have been well known, but they're all full of amazing features, and the love of Christ, well, it's eternal. And uh, the love of Jesus, in that sense, is not so much uh, initiating love, but uh, receiving love. Because we were God's people, we were a gift to him by the Father. And we all know what a gift is. Normally, the person that is giving the gift chooses what he or she thinks the recipient would appreciate. I mean, some gifts are surprises, and that's good when that happens, but no gift really is designed to be inappropriate. So the Heavenly Father, in his eternal wisdom, chose to give to his beloved Son the gift that he knew that his beloved Son would most appreciate. 
I mean, there, there's lots of things he could have given to his beloved son. And some things he has given to him, but not so much as for a gift. I mean, Jesus is the heir of all things. But and he's appointed the heir of all things because of the, the fact that he had to come and suffer and die. And if he hadn't suffered and died, there would be no all things for him to be the heir of. But his love, his gift of love is connected to that. But the father gave to his son a number that no one can count. And the father, in giving them, loved them. And from a certain point of view, he's thinking of his people and what would be the best thing for them? And the, the best thing for them would be given to Jesus. And we, can, and we can understand that because, well, Jesus is everything that we need. He is the one who, as the text says, is going to be our savior and our sanctifier and who's going to share the eternal inheritance with them. So there's obvious reasons why we should be amazed that the Father showed his love for us by giving us to Christ. But when it comes to Christ being given us, because we were the opposite of everything that he represented, if you want to put it that way. I mean, he's holy. We were given us sinners because we were given to him to save. So we are unholy. And yet, since he's the only wise God, so him giving his people to his son is an expression of his eternal wisdom. It's not some kind of um, secondary activity of the Father. This was what suits his eternal wisdom. The best thing he could have done. And the Son, of course, we're, we're talking about two omniscient persons. And it's hard for us at times to get our our words to rise to describe the profoundness of it all. But the, the son knew what he was getting. He was getting us. And that's amazing, is it not? That way back there in eternity, The Father gave the Son a people and instantaneously the Son 
loved them. Of course, when we're speaking about this divine transaction, we're not to imagine that somehow or other before this, there was anything else happening. This is a, an eternal thing. It's always been the case. There never was a moment when we were not given to the Son. However, however we wish to define God and his relation to time, and that, of course, is very hard for us to grasp. But there, there never was a moment in God's existence when this divine present had not happened. There never was a time before the Father gave us to the Son. It has always been the case. And the Son has therefore loved us eternally. The Father loved us eternally and the Son loved us eternally. And in their endless existence, an existence without beginning. They loved us. And Jesus loved us. It's hard for us to get our heads around that. You know, we say about people, we love them with all our heart. Well, Jesus, the eternal Son loved his people with all his heart long before any of them came into existence. And Paul tells us Christ loved the church. He loved them in eternity and we find that hard to appreciate. And as somebody has said, it's big enough for a, small enough for a child to paddle and big enough for an elephant to swim. But Christ's love is eternal, without beginning. And because it's eternal, it's always fresh, never increases, it's always the same always full, that's his love before he was, uh, came into the world. But sometimes we, we need to see love in action. And the love of Jesus and also the love of the Father required him to become a man. And he, as we know, he came into the world. He was conceived in the womb of Mary and he was born of her. And he lived a life down here. And for most of it, we know very little about it. But then his three years of public ministry and he does all kinds of things. 
But you know, there's one thing kind of common to all his situations, and that is he's showing his love to his people. There's lots of examples that we can take a cold account of. His love wasn't just eternal, but he revealed his love on earth. I mean, here comes Nicodemus. Kind of pompous Pharisee. And he comes to Jesus and he says to him, in a kind of condescending manner. We know you're a teacher come from God. And as we read that, we're meant to ask, how do you know that, Nicodemus? And who has given you the authority to decide whether or not Jesus has come from God? Who is the we that Nicodemus is representing when he says, we know you're a teacher come from God? Nicodemus came to, as it were, to give his his authenticity to Jesus. But Jesus, in his response, tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. And that brief statement told Nicodemus, although he was the teacher of Israel, he didn't know even the basic things of knowing Christ. But then Jesus went on to tell him about uh, the serpent being raised up in the wilderness as a picture of what he would happen to himself. And then told Nicodemus the words that we know, For God so loved the world. And Jesus, as far as we can tell, gives that statement to a pompous Pharisee. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, and hopefully Nicodemus, Grasp the point of whoever. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And the other two times that we hear about Nicodemus, well, he's in love with Jesus. When he stands up for Jesus in the Sanhedrin, and then when he, everybody else was too ashamed to be seen with him, he went and helped Joseph Uh, bury the Savior. But the love of Christ was revealed to him. And there wasn't one single thing in Nicodemus, even though he was the teacher of Israel, there was not one single thing in him that deserved to know that, that Jesus loved him. But he was told that. And then the Apostle John, as it were, the next chapter of his gospel, goes on to someone at the opposite end of the social scale. The woman of Samaria, who has lived the kind of life that she can only go to the well when nobody else is there. 
one day she goes, expecting no one to be there, and finding someone is there. And the one that she finds there, she doesn't expect to speak to her because she's a Samaritan and he's a Jew. But he does speak to her and tells her, woman, or asks her, woman, give me a drink. He takes the first step in winning her heart and perhaps, knowing her background, here's the first man that's ever spoken to her pleasantly. And she has all her discussion points and everything about it. And in the end, he tells her that he can give her living water. She goes back to her village a changed woman. Come see a man who told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? His love had touched her heart. And such was the transformation in her influence that the whole village rushed out to see the man at the well. A very vivid example of how the love of Christ changes a person. And there's many other examples like that in the Bible. But the life of Jesus on earth is all about revealing love, the love of God. And even after he had <clears throat> ascended to heaven and there's Saul of Tarsus, the enemy of the church, the man on a mission to, as somebody has said, to strangle the church in its cradle. And Jesus meets him on the Damascus Road and before he tells uh, Saul of Tarsus who he is, Saul of Tarsus knows who he is. Because Saul of Tarsus says to the voice that came from the heavens, Who are you, Lord? And the reply he gets, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And Paul, as we know, came converted. But how did he describe himself later on? He said, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. And that's the story that all his people give, isn't it? The Son of God loved me. So he showed his life, his love, sorry, when he was here on earth to lots of different people. And even after he ascended to heaven, he still reveals it. We would expect 
And I think it's part of our psyche that maybe we have to be careful about is that we expect judgment to come down in floods. But what actually comes down from heaven in torrents is love. How would we have dealt with Saul of Tarsus? Well, we know what heaven, how heaven dealt with him. I mean, God does judge, we know that. But every day, love comes streaming down. I wonder how many people were converted today around the world. Just because we don't know who they are, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't think that they're there. I mean, all over the world today, the love of Christ brought in his own people. The ones that were given to him by the Father. His attitude never changes. We could say he's a man on a mission. And his mission is to find all the ones that the Father gave him. And he will find them. Doesn't matter if they're religious people like Nicodemus or despised people like the women of Samaria or violent opponents like Saul of Tarsus. Jesus will find them. And with regard to any of them, it's not hard for him to convert them. It wasn't any harder for him to deal with Saul of Tarsus than it was with Nicodemus or with any of the others that he brought to himself. And that's our story too, isn't it? We may have resisted for years, but the reason why we resisted was because his moment hadn't come. All we were doing was rebelling. But then, as far as he was concerned, his time arrived. And we just found ourselves overwhelmed by his love. So the attitude of Christ he loved us, still does, always will. But then there's his action. We could say that all the ones, the details that we've mentioned so far, they were easy for him. It wasn't hard for Jesus to deal with Nicodemus. It wasn't hard for him to interact with the women of Samaria. It wasn't a problem for him 
in dealing with Saul of Tarsus. But when it came to giving himself for us, well, that wasn't easy, even for the omnipotent God. We know about the cross, the physical sufferings of Christ. And no doubt they were an awful prospect. But the, the, the physical sufferings of Jesus, as far as his body was concerned, didn't fill him with fear. I mean, there's been lots of individuals who have been willing to be martyrs. And whatever the, the method by which they would have to die, they were willing to do it. There's many a person prepared to be a soldier, knowing that they might die. And still they're prepared to do it. But we know that Jesus was disturbed by what he would experience on the cross. And there in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's got a choice, doesn't he? And the Father gives him a cup. And there's basically a we want to put it this way. If he really loves us, he'll drink the cup. And that choice is there. He can engage in some kind of self-preservation and not drink it. Or he can drink it. And in drinking it, show that he's very pleased at the present the Father gave him. The prospect of Calvary filled the outlook of Jesus with absolute terror. Sometimes I think we try and tone it down and say, well, he was divine and he could cope with anything. But if you're the Holy One, and you're facing the prospect of being made sin, of having to pay the penalty for sin. And although he himself never became sinful, yet he's got to suffer the awfulness as if he had been a sinner. And he's got to face the awfulness 
not just as if he had been an individual sinner, but he's got to face the penalty that was due to a community of sinners. And that community of sinners is a number that no one can count. And each of them is guilty of an innumerable number of sins. And every one of their sins deserves God's wrath and curse. Not one of them is guilty of any small sin because in God's estimation there's no such thing. Every sin is an act of rebellion. Whatever, however way it's done. And Jesus, as he goes to the cross, he goes there without any hope of any reduction in what he has to suffer. He's got to give himself, and he's got to give himself to the full intensity of divine judgment. I mean, humans can express love. I mean, a husband may do something for his wife because he loves her that may cost his life. A father may do something for his child that will cost his life. A soldier may do something for his country that may cost him his life. But all these scenarios, as each of them engages in it, there's a possibility they will not die. But Jesus, there's no such possibility. He cannot avoid paying the penalty. And the wages of sin is death. And there in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the cry of a man paying a penalty that nobody can estimate. Forsakenness. To be forsaken by God. There's no greater penalty. And there's Jesus and he's suffering the penalty. And he's not the victim. A victim is someone who is somewhere where he doesn't want to be. I mean... A victim can resist. And if there ever was a man who could resist, it was the Son of God because he's a divine person. Now there's no resistance. He, as it were, embraces the punishment. Not because he loved the punishment, because he hated it all. But he embraced it because he loved his people. It was an awful experience for him to be made a sin bearer. And he endured the cross, despising the shame. And he did it all because he loved us.
got no help from others. There beside him on the cross, there's all these women. And they can sympathize. But they can't do anything to help him. Even the criminal that's there beside him who says to him, remember me when you come into your kingdom, he cannot give Jesus a helping hand. All he's got to do as he hangs there is hope that somehow or other the one he sees suffering beside him will come through it. I mean, the man has exercised incredible faith. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. But he says that before the darkness happens. And then he's got to hang there in the darkness and watch the man that he has trusted in, seen him there suffering and paying the penalty. And will he do it? And the man has just got to wait and see. He can't help Jesus. And there he paid the price. He paid the price because he loved us. But it was an awful experience. One that filled his soul with terror. We have no real concept of the wrath of God. No one apart from Jesus has ever told us what it's like. And it was enough to make him cry. Why have you forsaken me? But he paid the penalty. And that's the only reason why we are sitting here. He paid it. And we come to the table to tell him that we admire him for what he did on the cross. We admire him each of us, because he took every ounce of the punishment that each of us was due. We should be astonished. The Son of God loved me. The Son of God loved sinful me. The Son of God loved those who deserved divine wrath. The Son of God gave himself. He gave himself 100%. And eventually he cried, finished. The word, it is finished, one word it's a word that means achieved something 
It doesn't mean it's over. But it's almost, it has been done. Almost is saying, I have done it. It's the word that someone would use when they make a, a table. And of course, Jesus was a carpenter. And no doubt many times in his life he had said to somebody, it is finished. You can take it home with you. But no one could ever say it is finished in the way he said it on the cross. It's also a term that can be used of debts. Someone comes to someone in debt and hands them a list of things they have to pay for. And some people may have one item on the list. Other people may have ten items on the list. As far as each of us is concerned, there's not enough trees in the world from which you could make bits of paper on which the list could be contained. But against the entire list, lists of a number that no one can count, Jesus writes, finished. Completed, paid. So that's him in the past. And we're invited here to look back. And we are instructed to remember him. So we have to look at what he's given to us as helps for remembering him. And he himself chose the bread and the wine. They are things to be seen as well as handled and as well as absorbed. We have to be active here. We're not to be passive. We are to look at these emblems as we look back. Because there's no other way of looking back. These are what he's given to us to help us to see what he suffered. Bread and wine. And when we think about how bread and wine are made. It's a faint picture, as it were, of his sufferings on the cross. But then there's Jesus in the present. What's he doing in the present now that he is highly exalted? What interests him? What does Jesus have in mind for us? As he sits on the eternal throne, having been given a title, Lord of all, Lord of everything, what does he want most for us? He wants our sanctification. That he might sanctify her. And how does he do it? He cleanses her 
by the washing of water with the word. What does Jesus use to sanctify us? He uses the Bible. His word. His living word. The word has got power. The word that can go right into the depths of our souls. It can, it's a mirror that reveals to us exactly who we are. He uses it. And as has often been pointed out, he uses it as a prophet, as a priest, as a king. And we might wish that Jesus would use something else apart from his word. And sometimes he does use other things in providence, but what sanctifies us through the power of the Spirit is the word of God. And therefore, it's obvious that uh, we should be as often in God's word as possible. How does Jesus do that as a prophet? Well, who's the Bible about? The Bible's mainly about Jesus. The Bible is not a selection of his of religious experiences taken from different times in human history. It's obviously that at a certain level, but at a far higher level is people interacting with Jesus. And he's there. He told his own disciples, he took them through the Old Testament and showed to them the things concerning himself. The Bible's about him. You know, sometimes we, I do this myself, so, so assuming everybody else does it too, I look at the Bible and see, what does it say God has done for me? And of course, there's a certain place for that. But it's better, I think, to ask, what does this passage tell me about Jesus? He'll take us to Psalm 22. As we sing Psalm 22, we should always, before we start singing, say, Jesus, teach me about yourself, since it's all about you. Or Isaiah 53, Jesus, teach me about yourself. As we go through the Gospels, Jesus, teach me about yourself. He's everywhere in the Bible. And it's always the right thing for Jesus to teach us about himself. Sometimes it's sad, isn't it, to read the Bible and not meet Christ. Because he's there. As Spurgeon put it, in every, there's a road from every village to London. So there's a road from every verse to Jesus. And we have to learn how to travel. But he will teach us. 
because he's the prophet. He's also the priest. In heaven, he's the one who sympathizes with us. He died for us, paid the penalty for our sins, but now he lives for us. And how do we know what he's going to do? Since he's going to cleanse us by the word, how do we know what he's going to do? Well, we have to look at the word. And it seems to me that the best way to think about him as a priest is to think about his promises. What is Jesus going to do for us? Well, what has he said he will do? Because that is what he'll do. He didn't give us his promises and then go on to something else. His promises, which are, as Paul says, are yea and amen in Christ. They're designed to tell us what he's going to do. And therefore, these promises, well, as we read them, they are, is Jesus doing that for me? Well, of course he is. He's promised it. He hasn't made them for everybody else but me. They're great and precious. And as Peter says, they're given to us so that we can become changed into the divine nature, made like Christ himself. And as our king, well, he protects us and helps us he protects us from our enemies. But how do we know, how does he do it? Well, his word tells us. And how do we help us? His word tells us. So it's important, isn't it, to realize that what Jesus is going to use in our lives on every day of the week is his word. And therefore it's obvious that we should be hiding God's word in our hearts. You know, it's wonderful to discover something in a book and to read how something blessed somebody else. And it is wonderful to do that. But it's more wonderful to discover the same thing from God's word. And then we and the person we're reading about can share the blessing. That God's word speaks and it cleanses us it cleanses our minds, it cleanses our emotions, and it cleanses our choices. And therefore, Paul tells us it's a way of sanctification. That's the present. The one who spoke to Nicodemus
and the woman of Samaria, and to Saul of Tarsus, speaks to us just as clearly as he did to them when he speaks in his word. And then there's the future. He's going to present the church to himself in splendor. That's just another word for glorification. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Normally, when a couple get engaged, the wife, the wife-to-be, prepares herself for the wedding. But here, the husband prepares her for the wedding. He prepares her by his method of sanctification. And our sanctification is he designs that one day, as a consequence of his working, not anything we have done, but as a consequence of his working, he is going to present the entire church to himself without spot or wrinkle or anything, that she might be holy and without blemish. And here we are. We're waiting for the day when we will be presented by Jesus to himself in splendor. as best as we can possibly be. Perfection, glorification, not a sign anywhere of even the smallest blemish. And he's gonna present us to himself. There's a hymn that says somewhere that when that day happens, will be fit companions for Jesus. We can walk with him in white. And we'll do that forever and ever. But just think of the moment. Because it's not an individual thing that's here. It's not when each of us crosses the river and our, our souls are made perfect in holiness. But it's when the entire church the number that no man can number. Because there is a certain sense until all of them are there, it's not finished, is it? And until all of them are there in splendor, what a great day. So past, present, and future. That's who we are. Jesus is involved in all, and it's good to know that. So may he bless these thoughts to us. We can sing from Psalm 22, verses 22 to 25, and sing psalms. His own promise that he's given to us. 
Now to my brothers I'll declare the praises of your glorious name. Within their gathering I will stand, and your renown I will proclaim. We'll stand and sing 22 to 25. Now to my brother shall declare the praises of your glorious name within the of the table, um, rather strange term, but um, at one time it wasn't so strange, and uh, <clears throat> as far as I can tell, and there may be other suggestions, but the idea of fencing comes from the practice in the Reformed Church, didn't have buildings that we have, didn't have seats that we have. People just stood in the churches, but in the church was a space cordoned off, and within that space they had a table, and in order to get to the table you had to go through the fence. There was a wee gate, and qualifications were made as to who could go through the gate through the fence and sit at the table. What qualifications are needed for us? Not many. I'm just going to suggest two. One qualification is that we know 
in our hearts that we are sinners. Not in the sense that we all make little mistakes. I mean, everybody admits that. But that we know in our hearts that we are sinners. That we're a lot worse than we actually realize. When the Holy Spirit comes, said Jesus, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. <coughs> Conviction of sin, well that just means we're convicted of our sins. It's got nothing to do with the things that may surround it whatever our feelings might be about other things, which may or may not happen. But we are convinced that we are sinners. And that's a qualification. Any other society will keep you out. In this society, it welcomes you in. And the other qualification is that we value the sinner's savior. We value the one who loved us. And we show our value of him by loving him. And we, as Apostle John says, we love him because he first loved us. And these are the qualifications. If you know you're a sinner, and if you love the Savior, you should be at his table. And that's it. So we can sing Psalm 130, and those who are not at the table, if they could come to it, there's two signs. Lord, from the depths I call to you, Lord, hear me from on high, and give attention to my voice when I for mercy cry. Psalm 130.
uh, we can read the words that are <clears throat> the authority for having the Lord's Supper from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and at verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And after his own example, we'll give thanks for the elements. Lord, we realize that here we're stepping on the heights of your own revelation. That you who came into the world, uh, the God who became a man, as a sinless man who lived a sinless life and died an atoning death. And it was your desire that all who believe in you would show their love by remembering you. Remembering you and what you did for them in the past and what you're doing in the present of what you will do in the future. This supper, as we are reminded, is only until you come. Something is only done on earth, and something is only done while we are still sinners. So Lord, help us as we uh, do this just now. To do it with faith, to do it with concentration, and to do it with love. So help us, Lord, for your own name's sake. Amen. When each of us gets the elements, just hold on to them until we've all got them. We read the night in which he was betrayed that Jesus took bread and when he had broken it he said take eat this is my body which is broken for you in the same manner also he took the cup and said drink ye all of it
we can take the bread. Take the cup. Just got um, one thing to say, really. Um, I don't know how often the communion has been held since I. Uh, came here 14 years ago, but uh, one thing I would say about them, as Spurgeon said, it's uh, always a sweet feast of love divine. And as that was the case before I came, and it was the case during our time here, and it will still be the same in the future. Sweet feast of love divine. Because Jesus is what matters. So we can close our service by singing Psalm 133 in the Scottish Psalter. A reminder to us it's not only a sweet feast of love divine, but it is the highest way of God's people publicly expressing their unity and harmony. So behold how good a thing it is and how becoming well. <coughs> Behold how good a thing it is
May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.